0: We now beginning our second part, looking at what is the gospel. And uh, the first two parts we kind of looked at. Um, God, we looked at uh, the fall of man, and now we're going to be looking at Christ and our response to this, all through the lens of the kingdom. Well, earthquakes are terrible disasters affecting the lives of thousands every year around the world. Earthquakes take place because of tectonic plates beneath the earth's surface. Shifts here and there result in rumblings and eventually movement with remarkable consequences. In many ways the rumblings of the earth's plates are much like the rest of the story of the Bible. Subtle shifts here and there in the story's plot work to create significant consequences. And The analogy itself is not too far away from how Scripture actually describes the created world. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that what the whole world groans with birth pangs waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Much like these tectonic rumblings and the surface movements, the New Testament sounds the alarm of an earth-shattering event it says that the kingdom of god is here despite the evil that is in the world and so with this in mind we move to our third movement our third development at the third stage of the gospel of the kingdom and it is this it is the gospel or oh, sorry the kingdom of god restored it is the kingdom of god restored The New Testament begins with the striking claim that, as was promised in the Old Testament, a king has been born, the son of David, the seed of Eve and Abraham is here. But as I've been arguing, this thread holding together the Bible story is held together by the idea of the kingdom of God. So if in the first two movements we saw the kingdom of God established and the kingdom rebellion, then through the rest of Scripture we're going to see God's response, right, to the fall of Adam and Eve. The reality is, friends, God in His kindness has set out to redeem a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that they might proclaim His excellencies, a people who has been called out of darkness, Right, the darkness of their sin, and they've been brought into His marvelous light. I'm just quoting 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 there. Right, that is the promise of the Bible and of the Gospel. You see, this is the good news of God, that in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our rejection of God's goodness and His righteousness, of our turning aside to worthless idols, it might be sex, it might be status, it might be power, it might be wealth, God in His mercy has not given up on humanity and that is good news is it not unlike the other countless gods and the deities of this world that are disinterested with creation the God of the Bible is the God who has set his love on rebels like you and like me so if you remember we left Genesis chapter 3 with a very As Karabu just said, a dark cloud. A bleak picture of Adam and Eve's fall. I didn't read it, but God goes on, as we know, to curse Adam, to curse Eve, to curse Satan, the serpent, and to even curse the ground. But it is in these curses that we see the grace of God even in these curses. You see, the grace of God piercing through the dark sky of rebellion. You see, in these curses, God gives a subtle hint as to his love and his restoration of creation. He promises to Eve that there's going to be this mysterious seed, right, an offspring, a child. And this seed is going to war. He's going to fight with the serpent until he crushes his hand but that victory is not going to come without his own heel being bruised well as we move on in the Genesis story in chapter 12 there's a sharp turn in the story God chooses an individual named Abram and he makes him a family despite all odds God blesses him with a son and this son grows and has his own children and this this family grows to be a nation, and this nation one day has a king. And God promises to this king that one of his sons will one day usher in a new age in which God again will rule the world. God promises to grow his kingdom through these covenants, right? These promises, these pledges, these contracts that he makes with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And what we see is that in each of these steps, God is restoring his kingdom in abraham we see that the kingdom is revived if you actually look at what god promises to abraham it's a reversal of what happened to adam abraham is promised land he's promised blessing he's promised seed right these are what was cursed with adam and eve and so the hope of genesis chapter 3 right the hope of the seed crushing the head of a serpent that's going to be the prom- that's going to be the channel rather through which god's promises through which God's blessing to the nations is going to take place. As Israel's story progresses, we we can remember of them being miraculously freed from the Egyptian slavery, and by God's powerful hand right of redemption, they are created as a people in the wilderness, as a nation, waiting to enter the promised land. And it is here that God begins to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Joshua chapter 21 and verse 45 tells us that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Not yeah, one of them had failed. Everything God had promised to the people of Israel had begun to be fulfilled. All of it came to pass. All that God had promised to Abraham was now taking shape. A land, a people, a kingdom. And this is the picture that we have by the time we get to David. Israel's enemies have been laid to rest. Like the fresh dew, on the ground, prosperity engulfs, right? It covers the land. The nation of Israel was so wealthy that you wouldn't stop to pick up silver on the road. Solomon, David's son, finally builds a glorious dwelling place for God. And it's as if we read the Bible and it's here is the light to the nations here is the kingdom of priests of Yahweh it is as if Eden has been built again God again dwelling with man and the sons of God expanding His glory into the world but just like the story of Adam we know that it doesn't end there does it? something is not quite right because as the people of Israel increase so does their idolatry. As the people grow in wealth, so does their temptation grow to worship other gods. The prophets, as we looked at briefly in our last session, they, they tell of a day when there's going to be a coming king, and this day is when God will again reign and rule. Because what we see with Israel is that they too, their, their kingdom crumbles and it succumbs to human failure. You see, Adam's commission, right? Adam's task to be a king on behalf of God, to rule the earth and to expand God's reign, is passed on to his offspring. But so is his rebellious nature. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, Solomon. Men who achieved great things. But we also have here a bunch of rebels who fail again and again. Drunkards, thieves, deceivers, murderers, fearing man and not God. All of them under the shadow of death, all of them buried. And yet in spite of them acting as, as kings for God and failing, God makes certain promises in the midst of that darkness. God makes certain promises to David. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 7, please. Second Samuel chapter 7. We find this in the Old Testament, after the Pentateuch. We have Joshua, Judges, and then we have Samuel. And move, move to the second book of Samuel, and then chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So we're in chapter seven, big number seven, looking at small number twelve to sixteen, ch- verses twelve to sixteen. Listen to what God promises to uh, to David. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when you die, I will raise up for you." offspring, after you. Right? It it, it sounds like the the promise to Eve, sounds like the promise to Abraham. And this offspring shall come from your body, and I, this is God speaking, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now at this point, we might think, wait, this is just Solomon. But look at the next word. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then Solomon died, in case you're wondering. But here is a promise for a kingdom that will never die. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There's the idea of kingship and sonship, like we looked at with Adam. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, it's quite ironic because David is the one who wants to build a house for God. But God responds to David and says, Actually, you know what? You're going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a household for you. There's going to be a coming son who will have an everlasting kingdom. And so God pledges, right? He promises that this son of David is going to have a special relationship with God. But we also see this strange warning that when he commits sin, right, he's going to receive the stripes of men. So where are we now? Where are we in the story of the Bible? Well, the Hebrew Bible leaves us, right? The end of the Old Testament leaves us with the nation of Israel in exile, kicked out of the land just like Adam and Eve were, because they and their king have the same problem as Adam, idolatry and a failure to worship the true living God. You see, the prophets record this awful spiral of Israel and they're turning towards blind and worthless idols, even though the living God is the one who rescued them from Israel. They would then turn to blocks of wood and worship them. But, and the word but is very important here, throughout all of this terrible news, there's the promise that one of Abraham's children... Right? one from the line of Judah one from the seed of David will grow up out of a fallen cut down stump and will lead God's people into the reign of God he will be the shepherd of Psalm 23 who will bring his people to still waters, he will feed them with the bread of heaven, he will grant them living waters he will instruct them as Moses instructed the people, he will be the victor he will be the mighty one who destroys the enemy, God's plan is once again to dwell with man through a future king Does this sound familiar? What does this sound like? I hope it does sound familiar. I hope that in forming a brief outline of the Bible story, we see how all of this, right, describes the person and the work of Jesus. I've read it before already, but Mark chapter 1, verse 14, this is the opening of Jesus' ministry. Jesus walks into the scene in Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do we see now the context? Do we understand what Jesus is claiming here? This is a significant statement. One that you do not just say lightly. The throne of David is now ready to be occupied, is what Jesus is saying. That promise from of old, right? The solution to our rebellion and the host of sins that proceed from our warped hearts is the reign of a king who can actually change his people. So we've seen the kingdom established. We've seen the kingdom rebellion. But now in Jesus, we see the climax of the kingdom restored. The climax of the kingdom of God restored. All of the scriptures friends, have pointed forward to this rule of the coming seed, a child of Abraham, a son of David, in fact, a true Israelite. One scholar says it like this, he says, to announce, you know, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God, to announce God's kingdom is to announce that God is at last overthrowing the dark powers that enslaved his people. To announce God's kingdom is to say that this is the time for God to reconstitute his people rescuing them and gathering them for life, new life, and new tasks. To announce God's kingdom is to say that, as in Isaiah 52, verse 7, which I quoted earlier, God himself is coming back to display his glory in person and in power. And those familiar with the Gospels will realize that Jesus' ministry testifies to this. It testifies and speaks of this power. Demons are cast out. The sick are healed. Terrifying waves and storms are carved with just a word from His mouth. All that characterized God in the Old Testament is embodied in Jesus. We need only again to think of the Psalms that speak of the activity of God, the things that only He can do. Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He who forgives all your iniquity and who heals your diseases. It's God who does those things. And yet Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, tells a paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you. And in fact, to prove that that was true, he says, get up and walk. forgiving sins, healing diseases. It's a picture of Jesus going around Galilee, right, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and healing every single disease brought to him. And so, when we read the Gospels, it's obvious the kingdom of God is here, the power of God is here, it's clear, everyone can see it. Even his teaching exhibits an authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. But friends, the most Probably the most shocking part of Jesus' ministry is the journey that he took to Jerusalem. Many expected him to walk into the city and to be crowned as king. Finally, the deliverer we've all been waiting for is here. Finally, the son of David would ascend his glorious throne and exercise his power over those Romans. But this did not happen. Jesus did walk to Jerusalem but he did not receive a crown of gold but a crown of thorns. Instead of Roman soldiers bowing to Jesus in fear and respect they bowed before him but mockingly. Jesus will ascend and be lifted up above all peoples except it wasn't a throne of splendor but a bloodied cross of wood. The powerful becomes the powerless. The king comes to serve and to give his life as a ransom. But why? Why such a turn of events? What a shocking end to what seemed to be such good news. Is this really the kingdom of God? The reality, friends, and this is what the world does not want to hear, the kingdom of God is fundamentally realized. We see it most clearly, clearly through the cross of Jesus. It is through the cross of Jesus that Jesus brings the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is again restored. If we remember our story thus far, we will remember that the kingdom rebellion severed us, right? It cut, it up, cut us off from the creator God, Because our sins place on our head a very serious and terrible sentence on our heads. Death, the wrath of God. Because God is holy and He cannot clear the guilty. And the promise was that the sting of death would be defeated. But it would not come without the bruising of the heel so the story develops this idea in a couple of places that victory is going to be achieved through suffering. The exile of Adam and Eve in Israel, right, is symbolic of the devastation of sin. Isaiah predicts that the exile must be completed, that Israel must serve their sentence, that this people must be cut down to a mere stump before God can again dwell with His people. The prophet Daniel tells us that the Son of Man will be given an everlasting kingdom. But first he must suffer as his people. Samuel taught us that the Davidic king will receive stripes from the hands of men. An all-important text that deals with this suffering for sins is Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So please, I'd like us to spend some time there. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. If you move along through the Old Testament, past the wisdom literature, the Psalms, and the Proverbs, and the first major prophet is Isaiah. Isaiah, in chapter 52, we'll be reading from verses 12. Oh, sorry, 13. It's a glorious passage that we need to turn our attention to. If we are to understand the connection between the cross and the kingdom. How do we understand the connection between the cross and the kingdom? And just to give you a bit of context, if you look at verse 7, we read verse 7 of chapter 52 earlier right? This is the promise of the good news. That's the context here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, right? What is that happiness? What is this good news? It's salvation, he says. The one who publishes salvation, the one who says to Zion, right? How do we know and find where salvation is? It's in the fact that God reigns. So we know that there's this expectation of God coming to reign. So what we're about to read now comes right after this promise of God's coming, saving reign. Right? This is the gospel. This is the good news that your God reigns. You see, Isaiah goes on to describe a certain figure, a person. He refers to him as the servant which in some cases, we're told, is Israel. The servant is Israel. But in other cases, Israel seems to be... Sorry, this servant seems to deliver and act on behalf of Israel. I think it is best if we see that this servant of the Lord, if we see him as the representative of Israel, right? Distinct from Israel, but sometimes acting as Israel or for Israel. Like the king himself who goes before his people. But well, listen carefully to these words. Chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, here's God saying, Look, look here, people, look here. This is where you're going to find the salvation, the, the good news that God brings. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, speaking of the servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Somehow, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who And to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. friends, at the heart of the gospel is the cross of Christ. These words here point forward to this servant who will suffer for people. He will give his life as an offering for guilt. He will make many to be accounted as righteous. He shall bear their sins You see, friends, in a strange turn of events, the cross, the very cruel means of death, places one person under the wrath of God on behalf of the many. The guilty cannot go free, but in Christ, the king himself takes on his people's plight. He takes up their sin. He takes upon himself their rebellion against a righteous God. Jesus is baptized in the waters of God's judgment, passing through to rescue a people who have the sentence of death on their heads. Jesus drinks the dreadful cup of God's wrath so that sinners can be passed over by the decree of punishment that lies on their heads. You see, friends, Jesus is the king, and he came not only to bring the kingdom of God, but also to bring sinners into the kingdom of God. Previously we are by nature sons of Adam in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan. But by dying in our place and for our sins, taking our punishment on himself and securing forgiveness for us, Jesus' offering of his own life makes us righteous in God's sight and qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul says this much in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, we give thanks to the Father. Why? Because He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us from the clutches of Satan. And He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. What can it mean that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin and yet by no means clear the guilty? How do we make sense of those two statements? How can a righteous and a holy God justify the ungodly? Well the answer to all these questions is found in the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' substitutionary death for his people, there, where Jesus hung on that cross, he died for sins according to the scriptures. You see, in order for the kingdom of God to be restored, the death of a sinless sacrifice on behalf of the many had to take place. Jesus, if you remember in Luke chapter 24, scolds, right? He rebukes some of his disciples who did not see this in the scriptures. In Luke 24, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about. Was it not necessary, necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Again, Patrick Schreiner puts it so nicely. He says, On the cross, Jesus rescued us from death and delivered us from slavery. At the cross, the people of God were saved from death, delivered from their sins, and set on the path to return home to their place. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb was the means of preserving his people from death and covering their sins, so the blood of Jesus on the wooden post rolled out the kingdom of God. Unquote. If that wasn't enough, friends, in fact, it would mean nothing unless Christ was raised. It would mean nothing for us if Christ was not raised. Paul tells us, you would be, of all people, the most to be pitied if Christ has not been raised. We'd be a bunch of fools sitting here on a Saturday, for goodness sake, right? Listening to a message of a dead man buried. But he is not buried because he is raised, because the resurrection points to the fact that Jesus was vindicated, right? That he was the Son of God, that his sacrifice on the cross was pleasing to the Father. It's the proof that his own life, the offering up of his own life, fulfills the plan of God, as he said, it was necessary, right, for God to redeem a sinful people to himself. Because in Jesus' crucifixion, death itself is put to death. Christ is victorious through his sacrificial death because he becomes the substitute and the representative of his people by raising risen from the dead he destroys death the very enemy of man and so the cross is not contrary to the kingdom of God it is in fact the very center of the kingdom the king has power yes but it is a paradoxical power it's a power that doesn't make sense to us it's a power of suffering and weakness friend I wonder have you ever gazed at the cross of Christ Have you considered Him who has borne the wrath and judgment of God for you? We see it on necklaces, we see it painted, we see it sung about, and it can mean nothing sometimes. But have you stopped to consider the One who has poured Himself out for you? The innocent Son of God, God clothed in humanity, pierced for your sins, all so that we could have peace with God. I pray that you look at Christ with fresh eyes again. Perhaps your joy has been small and weak. Well, friend, look not at a place in Christ to revive that kind of joy and see Him who was delivered up for our sins, but then rose for our justification. This is the kingdom of God restored in and through the cross of Jesus Because of what Jesus did on the cross, sinners can now come freely to the King and find forgiveness, that they can find new life. And this brings us now to our fourth and our final movement, our our final stage, the kingdom response. Well, as we said at the beginning, The gospel is fundamentally what God has done in Jesus, supremely in his death and resurrection. You see, in Jesus we see the true human, right? The true image of God, the one who embodies, who brings, who inaugurates, who fulfills all the kingdom promises. The story of the Bible is the story of God in search for a righteous steward of his kingdom. Adam failed, Abraham failed, Israel failed, David failed, you failed, I failed, but Christ was victorious. And so the gospel is the good news of God restoring his reign on earth through the power of the Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? For the redemption of sinners. So this is the good news of what God has done. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, I think it's again appropriate to go back to Mark chapter 1, which I've said a few times now. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 tells us from the outset of Jesus' ministry, He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then here it is. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, yes, the gospel is the good news of what God has done, right? The reality of God's coming reign. But, friends, his reign is not a suggestion. His reign, his kingdom call is that. It's a call to humanity. It's a call to recognize that God is claiming who He is. Yes, His kingdom is righteous, it's holy, it's full of mercy and grace. Yes, His kingdom comes to save sinners. But in order for the kingdom to establish and uphold what is right and true and good, it must necessarily divide the righteous from the unrighteous. And the question for us is, where will we stand? Will we be numbered among the righteous or among the unrighteous? Although we talk about this being good news, for those who reject Christ, this is the worst news. For God to be good, for God to be just, He must uphold justice and righteousness. And so for sinners who do not repent and believe in the gospel, they will face severe consequences for the rejection of God. They will remain in Adam, right? Still in the domain of darkness. You see, the gospel is the powerful announcement that, announcement that the world has a new Lord. And therefore all people, no matter what ethnicity, no matter how old you are, whether you're male or female, rich or poor, powerful or powerless, all people are summoned to give God allegiance. To think that there are any neutral citizens on earth who neither belong to the kingdom of God or who neither belong to the kingdom of Satan is to be severely wrong. There are only two ways to live here, friends. Jesus tells us that entrance into this kingdom is only on one basis, through repentance and belief. You see, the good news of the reign of God is not a neutral news report, as if to say the Kaiser Chiefs are better than the Orlando Pirates, or to say that chocolate cake is better than vanilla. Those statements have no claim in our lives. As we saw at the beginning. God is the rightful owner and king. And so His reign, right, naturally lays a claim to our lives. We are held responsible for how we respond to the good news of Jesus. I quote again D.A. Carson who is so helpful here and he says, what God has done in Christ Jesus has a demand built into it. If in God's mercy, Christ has come to bear the sins of His people, and has been risen to in a glory, to call together a new covenant people, and usher in His kingdom. Right? Part of this plan of God, part of this work of God in Christ, is an appeal for the ends of the earth to turn to Him and to be saved. I am not sure if you remember Corrado reading Romans chapter one at the beginning, but Paul refers to the gospel as being obey it he describes his ministry as being a a work of calling people to obedience to the faith to obedience to the gospel doesn't that sound weird gospel and obedience in the same sentence we are called to obey the gospel it's not a suggestion we are called to obey the gospel to obey this good news. There's a very real demand placed at our feet because Jesus has been risen from the grave. Every single human life is determined by our response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On that last day when we die and appear before God, that will be the question. What did you do with my son? How did you respond to the resurrection of my son? Not your money, not what you look like, not what type of person you were, not what party you voted for, but how did you respond to my son? Did you obey my gospel? So Jesus tells us that if we, are enter, if we are to enter into the palace, the kingdom of God, we have to enter through the narrow doorway, which is faith and repentance, believing and repentance. So what do these two words mean? Well, firstly, let's look at faith. You see, friends, it's because of the cross that we can now come to the king and benefit from his rule. But we can only do so through Faith. Faith is the way to enter the kingdom. All who have faith in the Messiah will be made right with God. Faith in the King is the access code to this community. You see, it's not not the amount of money we have that can change us and bring us into the kingdom of God. It's not the amount of power that we have that can bring us into the kingdom of God. It's not how much we know that can bring us into the kingdom of God. How much we do, or how good of a parent we are, or how great a citizen we are. Biblically speaking, faith, as described by the Bible, is reliance. Reliance. Trust. It is a living trust in the promises of God. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not about closing our eyes and hoping for the best. Faith holds on to Concrete realities. It holds on to the promises of God and trusts them as if their lives depend on them. And guess what? Your life does depend on the promises of God. And what matters most, most is not how big our faith is or how strong our faith is, but it's the direction to which our faith is pointed. If you sit on a chair with two legs no matter how much faith you have, that chair is not going to stand with you sitting on it. That's a useless thing to put your faith in. But a chair with four legs, cemented and drilled into the into the floor, that's something that, you're know, worth putting your faith in. And so when it comes to faith, it's not how much we have; it's what we're placing our faith in. Where our faith is aimed at. And so for entrance into the kingdom of God, it must be faith that is directed towards the revelation of God in Christ, towards the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Nothing else can take away the sin of your life except the Lamb of God. It's a faith that claims no righteousness in yourself. That doesn't say, hey, God, I've got this. Look at me. I'm a good person. It's a faith that trusts that God will justify you because you are in Christ. Because Jesus has given you the righteousness that you need. That He is your King and that He goes before you and that He will lead you into victory. This is the faith we are called to. So if faith is turning to Jesus and relying on Him for salvation then repentance, friends, is the other side of the same coin. We cannot separate the two. Faith must be accompanied with repentance. And too often in churches this is the problem. We only preach that you must believe. There's no expectation for change. But guess what? The Bible tells us that change that comes with the gospel is real. That we are not just made to be better, but we are made to be new. So if faith is turning to Jesus, then repentance is quite like it, but the opposite. Repentance is turning away from our sin. Turning away from the idols that held us in the grip, right? That enslaved us. And it is in this repentance, in this turning away from the death that awaits idolatry that we enjoy life. Jesus' death has secured repentance for sinners, right? Now we can be finally stripped of the power of sin and evil. Now we can turn to God and to be restored to that original task that we were given in the garden, praising and being in devotion with God and expanding His glory into the world. In the Christian life, as the, the Reformer Martin Luther said, is one of continual repentance. We do not repent just once. Repent every day. If you're like me, every hour. Every time you're confronted with serving another God, whether it's ourselves, our passions, or fearing man, that's when we are faced with the call to repent and to show allegiance to Christ. One way of looking at it is to say that there are only two types of people in this world. Sinners and repenting sinners. But be encouraged, friends, if you have a desire to repent, right, that speaks of God's work in your life. That speaks of God's Spirit placing conviction in your heart. So even though you're faced with sin again and again, and you're faced with temptation again and again, it's the fact that repentance is there, the desire to turn, that is a sign of saving faith. Right? It's the unregenerate who feel no prick of conviction, who feel no desire to turn from their sin. So there are sinners and there are repenting sinners. Those whose ultimate allegiance is to another God and those who have bowed the knee to Jesus. My prayer for you today is that you would consider this gospel. That you would consider this good news of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, won't you consider dropping your fists at God? You know the empty promises of sin. You know how sin offers this beautiful gift of life, so so it appears, but in the end it is only death. It leaves you empty. But Jesus, the King, offers true, lasting life, pleasures forevermore, and joy, fullness of joy. The reality is, friends, whether you realize it or not, everyone In this room, one day we'll bow before Jesus. Every single one of us. Every person walking those streets, driving in their cars, in every city, in every province, in every country in this world will one day bow the knee before Jesus. The question is, will you do it in this life or the next? In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he bursts into a beautiful hymn about Jesus' humility and exaltation. And then he closes with these powerful words. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus because of his work on the cross and given him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. Friend, when not you bow now if you haven't already? when not you turn from your sins and you turn to God? this is the only hope on the other side of the grave. Because for those who turn from their sin and turn to Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in His death on their behalf, they are promised resurrection. They are promised life eternal. This is the only thing that can save you from the wrath of God that rests on you right now if you have not turned from your sins and turned to Christ. One of my favorite hymns is written by a man called Joseph Hart. And he puts these truths in such a beautiful form in his song, Come Ye Sinners. And it's a call for sinners to consider the gospel. The first verse says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. That's what we are poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. So won't you come to Him and embrace the King who died for you? This is the gospel that not only saves us, friends, but transforms us so that we begin to look more and more like Jesus himself, the true image of God, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We are promised transformation that as we behold Christ in the glory of the gospel, we will be transformed by one degree of glory to the next. It is at this point of repentance and faith that we would then receive the Spirit of God, that we would enter into God's kingdom, that our allegiance now would be given to Him, not to ourselves. God's Spirit then seals us, right? Seals us and prepares us for that day in which God's kingdom, which right now seems invisible, will one day be revealed in all its glory. That great day when he will resurrect all those who have slept in death, and we will inherit the earth. There in that place God will again dwell with his people. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, no words can adequately describe what you have done for us in Christ. But we do thank you for your word, which we can dig into and read and study and feed from. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We thank you for your gospel, for without it we would have no hope. We would be without you but in Christ you have revealed your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness, would we not take that for granted? Lord, when we consider that there are many thousands and millions who have never heard of Christ, help us to listen now. Do not leave here unaffected. But would your words sit heavy on our hearts? For those who do not know you, grant them repentance that leads to life. Lord, give them your spirit. Give them new hearts. For those of us, Lord, who have walked this road, who know of your saving grace, would you encourage us in your gospel? That we would see the gospel not just as believing, but, Lord, as requiring us to continue to repent and to turn from our sins. For those who have not repented of their sins for years, but who have claimed to be Christians, would you convict them today? Grant them your grace, that they might turn from their sins. Lord, encourage us, Lord, as we walk towards that final day in which you will reveal yourself in all your glory and splendor. Give us gospel hope, Father. Transform us through the power of your gospel. Make us into Christ Help us to spread the aroma of Christ wherever we may go. Calling others into this glorious kingdom. We praise you for your work in Christ, for your glory and for our joy. Amen.